Hey, Brian. Hey, Dan. Hey, listeners. Welcome to the 81st episode of The Goods, a film podcast. I am excited to be joining you here today, Brian. Me too, Dan, because tonight we're talking Seuss. Uh, always good to talk Seuss. That's right, we're talking the 2012 animated film, The Lorax. And this is a production by Illumination Entertainment. It's the Minions Company. Exactly. I think it was their third production. Um, they did, I forget what the second one was, but the first one was Despicable Me, and then Despicable Me 2 came out shortly after the Lorax. And now they basically do nothing but Minions and the Sing franchise. Um, they might have one or two others, I don't know. But anyways, this was a, a fairly early one for them. This was the first time I had ever seen the Lorax. It is based off of a 1971 Dr. Seuss book. And it is one of a handful of recent, depends on what you how you want to define recent, but Seuss adaptations. They also had Horton Hears a Who. I never saw that one either. I don't know if Illumination made that. I can't remember. I think it came before Illumination. I believe the Horton movie was Blue Sky Animation, which I think was the Fox company that uh, made the Ice Ages. Okay, gotcha. Have you seen that one? I did see that one. It's pretty good, too. I mean, not to spoil my Lorex sentiments, but uh, I think both of those animated films far outshine the live-action Cat in the Hat and Grinch that preceded them. Yeah. Yeah, I think CGI is better canvas for for Dr. Seuss than weird comedians in ungainly prosthetics. Right. Unless, of course, Dr. Seuss himself was at the helm, as in his live-action effort, The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. That's right, yeah. That's his only live-action production writing credit we talked about that one we were both big fans of that one very strange and fun musical live action from what year brian that was 1953 so pretty early yeah and uh, as with when we talked about turkey hollow i think with some of these later adaptations you run into questions of like authorial intent when something that was created a long time ago is being milked long after the original writer has died by an estate. But I think overall, and more on this when we write, but I thought this one did a fairly good job of keeping the same spirit. Yeah, it's not quite as bananas and visually like just off the walls the way that I think of Dr. Seuss's illustrations being, but I will say I agree that this, there's a spirit here that I think matches the spirit of Dr. Seuss, at least the Lorax. And that's, it's interesting to me because this movie actually got pretty mediocre reviews and a common complaint seemed to be that they didn't think it was Seussian in spirit. And I mean, maybe just intrinsically being a part of the Hollywood industrial machine, you know, like you can't really make a very good anti-capitalist fable when you're trying to sell movie tickets and merchandise. Right. When you're spending a hundred million and trying to make five hundred million, it's 
not the best anti-capitalist parable. Right. But I, I do feel like this one doesn't really shy away from its anti-capitalist themes. Like it actually leans into it about as well as something pitched at this age group can. So I, I felt like it did fairly right by the spirit of Dr. Seuss, or at least the source material of the Lorax, if not Dr. Seuss in general. Yeah. Compare that to Turkey Hollow, where, you know, you did, you made a good case that it basically had nothing to do with Jim Henson, except he might have had like a one page outline of an idea or something in a notebook from when he was before he passed. So let's talk the uh, Dr. Seuss TV specials, though, because we, we exchange notes about this throughout the week that, you know, there's the movies, but there was also a series of TV specials that uh, were made of Dr. Seuss works. Right. And these were when Dr. Seuss was alive. The one that everybody knows, of course, is the Grinch adaptation with the Chuck Jones animation. Uh, certainly very well known. It's got the song, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. Uh, but what not everybody knows is that there was a whole string of these things done basically the same way where it's a retelling of the short storybook uh, with a few music numbers added in. And that's the show. They did one of the Cat in the Hat. There's also one of the Sneetches and a couple others. Uh, and then there's some that are only TV specials. Like, there was no book. So there's some really out there ones. There's one called the Huber Bloob Highway, which is basically the movie Soul that Pixar did recently just is the Hoover Bloob Highway because it's about baby spirits up in heaven about to be sent down to go into bodies. And the title tells you nothing about that. <laughs> Hoover Bloob Highway doesn't give that away for you? No, uh, Soul got it a little more on the mark. You know, Pixar is cowards. They should have just made a high-budget adaptation of Hoover Bloob Highway. Yeah, well, you know, Pixar, they, they dig through the old TV specials and they, they find the Christmas toy and they spin it into something that they call their own. What was the, the Inside Out one, the, like the Disneyland attraction? Oh, uh, Cranium Command. But to be fair, they did originate that one. Oh, okay. What Disney did, at least. Um, well, just one more out there one. There's one called Pontoffel Pock. I think it's Pontoffel Pock, Where Are You, or something. And it's about this guy who teleports around with a piano. I, I just want that to be known, that that exists, and I've watched it. Yeah. Pontoffel Pock, Where Are You? Yeah. So Dr. Seuss wrote that one, although it was made after he passed. So he was not a producer, I don't think. Oh, okay. But he, he did write that one. The The one that caught my eye was... That Horton Hears a Who was the the second one they made. So they made Grinch in 1966. And then from 1970 through 1980, they basically cranked out one every other year, every year and a half or so. And then the second one they made, so this was four years after How the Grinch Stole Christmas, was Horton Hears a Who. This one was also animated by Chuck Jones, just like the How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Maybe the greatest... American animator ever, certainly the most regarded television animator in American history. Uh, he did many of the most famous Looney Tunes shorts. Yeah, you can really tell his style, like the way he draws eyes and stuff and mouths. 
I want to see this Horton Hears a Who. I haven't seen that one. And I, I also definitely got to catch up with Huber Bloob Highway, Pontoffel Pock. There's one that's called Dr. Seuss on the Loose. I think that might be the Sneetches one. It looks like it's an anthology of a few of them. Okay. Yeah, I remember one's got the Sneetches and the Zacks in it. And that, that I really, I quite like that one. I think that's this one. I've not seen Horton Hears a Who. So maybe we got to toss that one on at some point. Shout out also to Halloween is Grinch Night, the Grinch sequel that is much less known. Yeah, another one written by Dr. Seuss, at least credited to him. But I mean, I don't know when Dr. Seuss died. That one came out in 1992 and Dr. Seuss, I guess, okay, he passed in 1991. So plausible that that wasn't just something sitting around. in a... What was the 92 one? Oh, wait, no. Halloween is the Grinch Night came out in 77. It came out on VHS in 1992. Okay. All right. So yeah, there's more things out there for your Dr. Seuss curiosity, but we got a full agenda tonight, Brian. So I think we should jump into the Lorax from 2012. And and I say we have a full agenda because listeners, I sh- you might've seen it in the episode title, but we got a another top five for you today. And that's actually why I picked this. So just a little bit of backstory. Brian and I used to write for a blog together called earnthis.net. And we wrote about movies, music, whatever. And there was like four of us who were regular contributors and then a couple other people who tapped in now and then. And at the five year anniversary of the blog, we did a series called Five for Five, where five of us picked five things that were our favorite things from the past five years. And so it was pieces of media culture that originated at some point between 2009 when the blog was founded and 2014 when we wrote these articles. Right. And we each had our own kind of oddball picks in there, I think. But one of Brian's, your number five was the song Thneedville, which I hadn't even heard of before I read this. And I immediately looked this song up and you were absolutely right. This song is a straight up banger. I don't want to read the whole few paragraphs you wrote, but you wrote like a few hundred words about, I mean, you tied in the movie itself, but just about how great this song is. And it's the opener for our our movie, Brian. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Needville? Yeah, I neglected to start out the episode by going, good morning. (laughs) Man, that did not capture the spirit at all. I... Was I meant to prepare, but, you know, listeners, you get the unedited, unfiltered experience. <laughs> we're, we're never going to be false to you. That's true. And if that sometimes means there's a lack of polish, well, that's, that's just our nature. But, yes, I saw this film in theaters when it came out in 2012, and Thneedville is the opening song that introduces the town where the characters live. Man, I was not expecting this. I'm a Seuss fan from way back. I just wanted to check this out. I think the um, Horton movie did come out not too long before this, and I had enjoyed that, so I went and checked this one out. And this song, like, blew my hair back. It was like, uh, what's the tech company from the 80s that had that uh, commercial for, like, their, their... cassette tapes and their sound systems where the guys in the armchair just getting like rocketed back oh yeah like uh thrill ho on the simpsons too right 
Right. That's how I felt after Needville had run its course. Because it's just this soaring aria to open the day in your dystopian community. And it's a dystopia that doesn't quite realize that it's a dystopia. It's like everything is awesome. And that, that adds to the charm. Right. Uh, another thing on my list was obliquely everything is awesome. It was just the Lego movie in general. But that has a similar angle where it opens in this town where people are happy because they don't know they shouldn't be. Yeah, this is a this is a banger, as they say, a real catchy one. I agree. That this is great. It has like all these harmonies and like just this, as you said, kind of soaring chorus and just very melodic. They do this sort of melismatic composition. Well, they do a lot of ululation where they're like, Oh, right. At like the at the end of the words. Yeah. And it's kind of like the the singing technique of melisma, where you do a lot of flutters at the end of the note. But I, I think ululation, is that how you say it? Is, is probably a better description. Well, yours is good as well. I just like to say ululation. <laughs> yeah. And I would say in general, this is a solid soundtrack. I, I like most of the songs here. Even there's some demos, and a lot of the demos are good. We'll talk about a couple of these songs as we go through. So John Powell is the listed composer. I guess secretly like one of my favorite composers because he also did uh, the How to Train Your Dragon score, which is one of my favorite scores ever. And I guess he's multi-talented because he, he can write these awesome soundtrack songs too. Yeah, really... Just overall, I think more people should know about the Lorex 2012. <laughs> like, I came out of it in in spring of my senior year of college, ready to tell people about it. So, here we are. Well, because of Needville, I decided to, that the associated top five would be top five favorite songs from movies. Because, you know, this was one of Brian's favorites, at least of that five-year period a few years ago. So now we're going to, at the end of this episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about our overall favorite songs. And we'll get into some of the criteria and thought processes we put into this top five when we get to that. But let's talk again about the Lorax, which I am excited to talk about, um, not just the top five. So this movie was a, a 3D movie. Did you see it in 3D, Brian? I think I must have, which I didn't remember until I watched it for the podcast this week and there's a lot of things that happen that had me thinking wait a minute this is a 3d movie yeah it's like there's a staircase that pops out of a wall and then he's like riding his motorcycle along and there's like axes swinging by his head like, okay i i can <laughs> just tell and what it made me think is that i was disappointed i haven't got the 3d blu-ray of this one yet so i just gotta track that down oh you don't have this one no i was gonna ask yeah but you know, the, the timing lines up because uh, like maybe a month before, I probably saw this in like May. It was close to the end of my senior year. Just around this time also was the 2012 re-release in 3D of Titanic to mark the centennial of the sinking. Uh, so that would have probably been April 2012. Gotcha. So one of the only things I knew about this movie prior to this week was Beyond Needville that I remember when this movie came out, I was still following movies in general, especially animation, pretty closely. And this one got a lot of really bad buzz. It got some mediocre reviews. And one of the main aspects of its bad buzz is that all the marketing stuff it did 
was very capitalistic. It did a bunch of McDonald's promotions. It did like, I think there were some car commercials or something. Yeah, the one that really got me was they did an SUV commercial. And, you know, it's got all the little happy animals dancing around. And it says that this SUV is Lorax approved, which. Wow. That's a contradiction in terms. <laughs> that is. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So this movie's actually got kind of a hell of a cast here. The Lorax himself. So he's of an undeterminate species. He doesn't really resemble any animals, but I, I like to think of him. I read this letterbox review that said, this orange fucker funny. It was like a four word review or five word review or something. And ever since then, the species that I think of the Lorax being is orange fucker. So he's this little guy and he's very short and kind of cylindrical in shape. And they cast Danny DeVito which is just perfect because now I can just imagine Danny DeVito, you know, as like it, they could have done live action. If they'd done a live action one, Danny DeVito would have been perfect as the Lorax, you know? You're right. Yeah, they did a good job picking him. Uh, the Lorax is orange. He's furry. He's got a big mustache. He kind of looks like Jamie on Mythbusters or just a, a walrus. But yeah, mixed with a carrot or something. Right. And so the way the movie actually opens before we hear Sneedville is he gives us a little framing story is where we meet the Lorax. Spoiler alert, more so than in the book, the Lorax is really not all that pivotal into the story. He's like maybe the fourth most important character in the story, despite being the title character. But I guess he's like the symbol of the theme. So, you know, and plus you're adapting a book, you got to keep the title. But uh, I just thought it was interesting how he ends up being not all that central. And you don't even meet him until we'll get there, but like 20 plus minutes in maybe. Because it, it opens with Needville, and one of the boys in the Needville is a teen. He's probably around 13, maybe 12, something like that. His name is Ted, and he is voiced by Zac Efron. Another Zac Efron appearance for us. How many is that? Well, obviously the various high school musicals. What else has he been in that we've specifically covered Greatest Showman. Oh, right, of course. And then I was thinking a lot about him, and I can't decide if it was just because I was I rewatched High School Musical this past week with my daughters for the first time. They had never seen it, and so I showed it to them, and they liked it. And so I've been thinking a lot about Zac Efron. Yeah, just trust that Zac Efron is never too far from our minds. <laughs> Although, worth noting, I mean, I, I'm not saying that he is a particularly good singer in and of himself, like... He fam well, famously to me, doesn't actually even sing the songs in High School Musical. The first one. The first one. He does for the second and the third. That's right. But um, he doesn't actually sing anything here, which is kind of funny. It's bizarre because who is his crush, Dan? That's right. Yeah. So we meet him basically contriving to find more ways to interact with this girl who lives across the street from him or something. And it's a girl named Audrey played by Taylor Swift. Who also never sings. This is a musical and neither Zac Efron nor Taylor Swift have any of the lines in the songs. Bizarre. Yeah. So the Lorax book itself, we don't get any framing story for the boy. The boy just kind of appears. He has to like pay in trinkets to hear a story and he hears a story and then he leaves. But he's like a the main character or one of the two main characters of the movie. And his name, he gets the name Ted which on its surface does not seem like a very Dr. Seussian name. But do you know the significance? I think I've guessed it, 
if I had not known, I don't think I would have placed it. But is it because Dr. Seuss is named Theodore Geisel? Yes, Ted is Theodore Geisel. And then uh, mm. apparently Dr. Seuss's wife was named Audrey. Oh, okay. Okay. So they're paying a little homage there. I like that. Yeah, no, that, that you know, the name, naming the main guy Ted was actually on my list of not so good things. So you just knocked one of them off the ledger for, for the downsides to this one. But yeah, I think as far as examples where a short story gets expanded out into a feature length film, this one does a pretty good job of tacking on a frame story. I mean, I'm kind of of the opinion that you never really need to stretch out a short story. It's like you could make a short film, but I guess that's not really commercially viable but you know they didn't spin this frame story entirely out of whole cloth it's it's built on a framework that's kind of there because we do have that kid that walks up to hear the story so what's this kid's story right and so audrey so this is the the crush i just thought of her as taylor swift the whole time because ted's entire motivation is to to kiss taylor swift which i mean fair you know so that that's what's driving him and it turns out that Audrey is fascinated by the idea of something called a truffula tree. And she makes this big mural. She desperately wants a truffula tree. And Ted vows to get her one because, you know, to win her heart with the gift of the thing that she's dreaming of. But of course, they're living in Thneedville, which is a super plastic consumerist, no organic life, dis slash utopia where you can't there there are no truffula trees yeah no trees at all i guess i didn't really get into the contents of the thneedville song yeah yeah so let's talk more about thneedville in thneedville we manufacture our trees each one is made in factories and uses 96 batteries i love that line a different singer comes in for that line Right, so it's all artificial, like, all the birds and the bees are, like, robotic, all the trees are plastic and, like, have disco light bulbs hanging off of them. Weird, just, like, dark, but also kitschy and silly, and it's a mix that I like. It's like a happy dystopia, as we said. Yeah, it's almost subversive because it's taking like the kids brightly colored animated style and like weaponizing that into this nightmare scape where everything is fake it's like uh stepford wives or what's the one edward scissorhands or something like that yeah where the the bright inviting cheerful coloriness is actually representative of something sinister right it's like a twilight zone episode or something right like where they wake up in the dollhouse Nothing's real. So now Ted's on the hunt for one of these trees and he starts talking about it with his family. He lives with his mom and his grandma. His grandmother is voiced by Betty White, RIP. And his mom is voiced by Jenny Slate. Do you know Jenny Slate? No, this is an actress I wasn't familiar with, but I do like her performance. Yeah, my my Jenny Slate theory is that she makes everything she's in better. I've seen her in like, four things, including TV shows, and all of them are improved by the work that she's doing. So she had a couple of starring vehicles over the over the years, and I want to track them down and see if, if that theory holds up, that she makes everything better. Uh, she's kind of doing like a fake New York accent. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a Jewish mother thing. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the the grandma mentions the existence of someone named the Onceler who could tell Ted about the trees. And it sounds like a legend, like uh, the boogeyman or something, the Onceler. But she says, you have to go outside the city walls to go find the Onceler. And Ted's like, outside the city walls? And for me, this was like a, a surprising moment because this is like where it kind of hammered home that we are in a dystopia. Like people never go outside the walls of their city. It's like a verboten thing. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you use German there to say verboten because what this makes me think of is like medieval walled cities. Like back in the day, often um, in medieval Europe, there the cities would have walls around them to kind of keep invaders out and so like if you ever watch the anime attack on titan people have reverted to living in these walled cities because there's giants roaming around and and stuff uh so i i kind of felt like that like it was hearkening back to an earlier age uh but of course it's also kind of like the city of ember that we watched recently yeah it's a lot like that i was really struck by it it's like this place where they're all powered by f fake stuff but I was definitely thinking of that, too, especially once you get outside of the city walls. And it really is kind of apocalyptic out there. It's kind of scary. So, But yeah, so he, he goes and hopping on this little scooter he has, a one-wheel scooter, and finds a little button to open a secret door where he gets out. And all of a sudden, it's just like everything is gray and dark. I think he's going there at night, which just adds to how sinister it is. Um, this kind of comes from the book where the boy approaches the Onceler's tower and it's dark out. And we see all these kind of dead stumps of trees. And he approaches this kind of really interesting looking tall crooked house. That's again, based off the book. It's where the Onceler lives. And in the book, the Onceler is always like inside a window or obfuscated by something. So you just see his arms. Yeah, he's got these long green gloves and you only ever really see his hands. So for all you know, he's like some kind of Grinch creature or something like a green furry guy. Right. Uh, because you only ever see him from the back. You only ever see his appendages. And here we're kind of seeing him through slits on a like boarded up window. So we get some sense that there's a face there, but we don't see it at first, except the Onceler basically starts telling Ted the story because Ted approaches the Onceler's house. They have this interaction and basically the Onceler starts telling him what happened to the truffula trees because that's what Ted wants. And it goes to a flashback and the Onceler is a boy not too different from Ted. He, it, he's probably a few years older, like 17 or 18 or something like that. Uh, maybe a little older than that. I don't know. But so, yeah. So now much of this rest of this movie is going to be in flashback where we're going to see how the world got to the way that it is. And. Uh, the Onceler is voiced by Ed Helms, and here he places like a, a skinny, handsome guy. That's who that's who the Onceler is at the start. Brian, one thing you and Gargus mentioned at the end of last episode when when I mentioned this was the movie we were picking is that there's weird online fetishization of the Onceler. Do you have anything you can tell us about that, Brian? Yes, let me shine a light into this world of a sort. So spring 2012, I went and saw this movie and just really enjoyed it, uh, mostly the soundtrack, and Thneedville especially. I think I may have listened to Thneedville a hundred times in the week after I saw the film. And I found that there were other people who quite enjoyed this film, but for different reasons than <laughs> I myself. And 
People really find the Wansler attractive. So one explanation that I saw for what this led to was that for whatever reason, they, they found the Wansler attractive, but no other characters. And as the movie goes along, the Wansler undergoes a transformation into an evil version of himself. Spoilers. Uh, but because there was no one else to ship the Wansler with, they shipped him with himself. <laughs> the evil version of himself. So good Wansler, ex-evil Wansler, giving birth to the fandom known as Wancest. That's pretty messed up. It's pretty weird. <laughs> it's very strange. Uh, they wear different costumes. Beyond that, there's not all that much setting them apart. Um, right. It's one guy. <laughs> but it's the internet. Yeah. And, yeah, like, that's one of the biggest legacies of this film. If you look into Lorax 2012, I think there's a good chance the Wikipedia article on this movie might mention Wunsler. Or at least the fandom of the of the Wunsler. Yeah. Yeah, and apparently... Um... I, I found some overview of this concept online, and apparently Ed Helms, who voices the Wunsler, also known as Andy Bernard from The Office, one of the stars of The Hangover as well, he was doing like an online Q&A at one point and was just flooded with Wunsler fans who submitted the Q&A. And so basically he like had to address the, the Wuncest phenomenon. And he basically said, yeah, so apparently there's a lot of people who are in love with this guy and imagine him making love to himself. And like, I know that I think he's an amazing character, very beautiful, but this is weird and y'all need to get a life. And I, I thought that was pretty funny that he actually had to address it. <laughs> yeah, honestly, a pretty good reaction, I think. It's the proper reaction. <laughs> I I did see one one piece that uh, it was uh, uh, shipped the one slur with a younger grandma Norma. So there is some variation. Some people are at least getting creative with it. Yeah. There's a couple times in the flashback where it'll like zoom into a, a woman character. And I kept wondering if it was going to be a twist that, Oh wait, that was actually the grandma, but it never ends up coming to anything or at least anything of significance. Right. Because obviously she knows him or at least knows of him and was around in that era so uh, i'm kind of surprised that we never see the younger her yeah so uh, who, who knows but so we get the story of the one slur and it opens and he's kind of this guy who wants to make a, a name for himself he's, he's got this horrible family it's like they're really mean to him and they're also like ugly character designs and stuff in contrast to him and they don't believe in him, but he's going to go like prove that he can make something of himself. And so he goes out, kind of has a, a cart that he, like a carriage with a, what is it, a donkey or a horse that's pulling it or something, and finds this beautiful valley filled with truffula trees. So these, these truffula trees are, well, Brian, how would you describe a truffula tree? It's like a palm tree topped with Muppet fur. Okay, that's good. I don't think you're going to top that. It's like very, very fluffy. And I actually really like this animation. There's this thing that as computers have gotten better, you see more often. And that's to make the texture of things like really look like it is a physical texture. 
and these truffula trees really do look like yarn not yarn like hair animal fur it's it's like it's like a cotton ball or something or it's furry it's very furry and the fibers move on their own just so enough that it looks like it's actually a thing and the lighting is very kind of gauzy on it so it looks soft i think these these trees look cool and they they did right by the truffula trees in the film and it also in this village are all these little animals. So there's little fishies, there's little bears, the birds. All these animals are also in the book, and I, I think they all have various Susian names. But I just thought of them as bears and birds and fishes here. Right. Yeah. I think we've got Swami swans, and and the bears are barbalutes. And I thought it was kind of funny that at one point Ed Helms he like sneeringly says barbalutes. <laughs> when that term had never been used before in the movie we just had to know that these are barbalutes that's what he's talking about he's like oh is that like a one slur curse word or is he talking about something that he's seen i guess it's the bears yeah no i mean it is it's the name of the species but they had never explained that so you really have to like you know you have to know the book right right so i i kind of like that okay so he has a little bit of clash with these animals. There's this gag where he like feeds them marshmallows and wins their love. And eventually he like sets up shop and he chops down the truffula tree. And this causes the Lorax to emerge. So we're at this point, we're like more than 20 minutes into the film, maybe 25 minutes into the film. And we, we finally get our title character and he's the Lorax and he speaks for the trees. And the Lorax is upset, of course, that a tree got knocked down. And so he, we get this other kind of extended bit where the Lorax is scheming to get the Onceler to leave the valley. And eventually they come to this truce that the Onceler can hang around, but he can't chop down any more trees. But from that first tree, he makes this thing called a Thneed. So Brian, tell us about a Thneed. What's your take on the Thneed? So the thneed is the product of a thousand uses. It's basically a fluffy piece of fabric, but then think about anything you could possibly do with fabric. And so it's like you could use it as a cleaning cloth. You could use it as any item of clothing. You know, you could use it to dry things. You could use it to cover things. I mean, really, it's a it's a textile. But, of course, it takes on, like, very Susian shapes. It, the, the usual form it's shown in is, like, a sweater with too many sleeves. And it reminds me of a Klein bottle. Do you know what a Klein bottle is, Brian? Oh, yeah, I can kind of see that, yeah. A Klein bottle is something that is notable if you are into geometry. It's something where, basically, the surface is non-orientable in that it has very unusual properties. Think about it's almost like the 3d equivalent of a mobius strip yeah it's like a you're the mathematician but that's what i would say too it's like a mobius strip it's like a bottle where the the opening of it kind of like goes in on itself right you, you got to see a picture of this thing there's an episode of futurama where they're walking through like a beer aisle in the future and they have beer in klein bottles oh that's clever so he takes this need and he brings it back to some town and he basically tries to sell it. And so we get another another bop. Everybody needs a need. And 
it seems like he's not going to sell it, but then somebody discovers that it makes a great hat, and then they start to realize that it can do all these things, and the dejected Onceler is finally inundated with these masses who all want a th- need. Yeah, I think this movie presents capitalism in an interesting way. Like, it doesn't shy away completely from some of the system's strengths. Like, here is a guy who is struggling, and he hits on an idea that's popular with the people, and then he's able to achieve success through that. But, of course, we're going to see where it goes. Yeah, I just watched this hour-long debate between... Actually, one of the guys is a, I think, League of Legends streamer or something. And then a a socialist-leaning professor of economics doing a debate on the merits of capitalism versus socialism. And like what the actual definitions of those words are and their various merits. And I watched that before I even thought about the fact that it kind of related to this movie. But as I was watching, I was like, oh, yeah, the concepts are all here. How it's like... The problem with capitalism is that it inevitably necessitates more growth and more expansion and more and more and more. It necessitates biggering, which is a word used dramatically in the book that gets is in the script a couple of times. And in fact, is the name of a cut song. So if you listen to the soundtrack, there's a demo called Biggering. And um, that it eventually got repurposed into another song we're about to hear when the the Onceler has this transformation called uh, How Bad Can I Be? But I, I I did, I thought it was really interesting how it kind of showed that, you know, in micro scales, using incentives and ingenuity is positive, but like as soon as you start to scale it, it like inevitably leads to exploitation and, and things like that and, you know, de- depleting resources and kind of shifting the the wealth towards the powerful and the people who who have the the means to to continue to grow and grow and grow so no i i actually think that this movie does right by pretty fair commentary on on what some of the pros of capitalism are like you said and like how by giving people the incentive to to come up with the next great idea it's like it actually does drive that but also like how very, very flawed, unfettered capitalism and dangerous unfettered capitalism is. Right. There's a there's a tendency toward monopoly. There's a tendency toward corruption. Exactly, you know, yeah. Cut, cutting out competitors, cutting out new innovation once you've climbed to the top. But recall that the Onceler has made a vow with the Lorax that he will not cut down any of the truffula trees. That's the reason he can stay in the village. So now he's trying to grow his need business, but the only way he can do it now is he gets his family to come and they painstakingly, painstakingly, Brian and I were just having a conversation about the word painstaking. Like I say it as painstaking, but like the etymology seems to be painstaking. Like you take pains to accomplish something. That takes a lot of effort. You you take pains, so you are painstaking. But I I myself say painstaking, and so I always assumed that that was what it meant, what it was. But that doesn't really make any sense because what is staking? Right. I I you know uh, to me it's like you're you're sticking a, a vampire with a stake. That's that's <laughs> staking, and maybe it causes them pain. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, but the onceler has to take pains to pull the 
fibers off of the tree without actually chopping down the tree. And in a scene that I imagine might have been longer in an original draft of the script, and I think they probably did right to just go ahead and like not give us too long where we have the illusion that this setup is going to last. Basically, immediately, one of the Onceler's family members is like, hey, you know, uh, we could just chop down the trees. And the Onceler's like, uh, okay. And he's like, how bad could it be to chop down a couple trees? We jump into his Breaking Bad montage where he just a little more, just a little more, get greedier, get greedier, chop down more, scale up, et cetera, et cetera. Despite the fact that he may have had this promise with the Lorax. So, and the, this booming of business montage is called how bad can I be? Which I think is a clever bit of wordplay. I really like because it's simultaneously, he's trying to convince himself that he's not bad like, oh, how bad can I actually be just to do a little bit more? But also, like, the flip side of it is he's like, how bad can I be? How much can I exploit things to grow? And I thought I, I liked the writing of this one. This is the one that was initially called Biggering. And Gargus mentioned that we had to call out how good this uh, demo was. He really likes it. It's like a darker rock version with slightly even darker lyrics about, like, greed and stuff. So if you like... How bad can I be? Go look up Biggering, too. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'll say that the soundtrack versions across the board, like the early masters, just they have slightly different lyrics and like some things that didn't end up in the finished film. Uh, so it's it's definitely interesting. Yeah. While we're at it and we're talking about other like movie songs this episode, check out the extended soundtrack of Moana with all the original Lin-Manuel Miranda work print recordings because there are some interesting lyrical variations there. Oh yeah, Frozen 2 also has like seven demos of songs that didn't make it in to the movie and some of them are good and they like mixed and matched parts of those songs into the final songs. But yeah, I like it when they do that, especially if you get really into it. It sometimes it tells you more about the movie itself and like what the writing process was like. I have a theory that for this movie, there was a whole I don't know if I already said this, that there was this whole act that was cut out of the, the movie in the editing room or maybe in the draft phase where basically they were going to give Ted more of like a intro story and like him more directly thinking about capitalism prior to us getting to the Onceler. But we don't get any of that at all. It just goes, it's like 10 minutes before we're at the Onceler's house. And I think it was better. But if you go listen to the demo of Thneedville, when we meet the singer who I think is the stand-in for Ted, he's talking about how he wants all these things. And then he kind of gets this cool like counterpoint melody at the end when they're still singing about Thneedville. So I, I really like the demo of Thneedville too. And yes, this is where uh, the Onceler gets his dark green gloves and his top hat it's a cool outfit he ends up with have you ever dressed up as the one slur brian i have not i might have been a little afraid <laughs> all the baggage associated right but uh yeah it's a good costume he he kind of looks like a greener version of the johnny depp willy wonka okay i can see that i never saw that movie but i, I remember the clips of him it's got a taller top hat too i think right right but he's got he's got the top hat and goggles combo, 
which I very much associate with Johnny Depp Willy Wonka. Things seem to be going great for the Onceler until apparently his growth projections did not account for the limited number of truffula trees. So like just when it seems like, hey, all our earnings are up, they suddenly go, well, we're out of trees now. I feel like if you have a good team, they would have identified this bottleneck (laughs) prior to the tree actually being chopped down where they're like, oh, we don't have them anymore. Yeah, this is really like an early capitalism problem like something that would happen in the 1800s or something yeah uh although i i like the drama of it when he is just going full force super evil and he confronts the lorax or the lorax confronts him and the onceler says and nothing's gonna stop me and then the last tree falls down and the lorax says that might stop you <laughs> yeah And this is where we also get the transition from like the bright green, colorful outdoor area to like this like more apocalyptic setting. There's like some, I would say, German expressionism influences here, like these kind of sharp angles in this fortress he builds for himself, like gears and stuff. I'm thinking like Metropolis, the Fritz Lang movie from the 20s, just some really cool stuff. But the Lorax indeed is like, well, you brought this on yourself after the, the last tree gets chopped down and he flies away. And the way he flies away is kind of funny. He lifts his tail and he pulls it up. And as he pulls it up, he just like flies away as if he were lifting himself off the ground. I thought that was kind of funny. And that's the way it is in the the book, too. So, mm-hmm. And so ever after, the location that he departed from is known as the Street of the Lifted Lorax. Yeah, I don't know if that's in the movie. Is that in the movie? But it's definitely in the book. There's a sign that Ted passes by that says Street of the Lifted Lorax. Mm. And the spot that he's lifted from gets this engraving with the word unless. And the significance of the unless is that this is the way that things will be forever unless someone cares a lot, someone like Ted. And so we learn that the Onceler has been basically, as he's been telling the story to Ted over several in-movie days, basically trying to gauge whether Ted is the, the person, the, the chosen one, if you will, the one who can restore the truffula trees and the, the kind of natural world that has been depleted by the capitalist society. Kind of as this story has been going on, this flashback, it's been intercut with these other segments where Ted is gradually being chased down by Aloysius O'Hare. I did not know that this is how you pronounce this name until Thneedville introduced this pronunciation to me. So it's A-L-O-Y-S-I-U-S, Aloysius O'Hare. Yeah. To me, it's the other way around that I knew how the name was pronounced and only recently learned how it's spelled. And I would not have guessed that the two went together because it looks like Aloysius. Right. It does. Yeah. And that's what I would have thought. So he's the owner of the biggest conglomerate. He, he's effectively the mayor, but he's basically like the head of the oligarchy of Needville. Yeah, he's he's basically Trump before he was president. Right. That's that's my my thought. Okay, I can see that. Um, he's he, but he's he's comically tiny. He's he's a little tiny guy. He's he looks like uh, Edna Mode from The Incredibles. That's what I was gonna say. Okay, I'm not the only one who thought that. 
Because he's got like this kind of gnarly haircut that's like a deformed bowl cut almost, kind of like Edna from The Incredibles. Another movie, I watched, rewatched Incredibles 2 with my girls this past week too. So I was thinking of her. But something we get, because uh, he's the, the titan of the town and his company sells air to the people. So it's uh, it's the same thing as in the movie Spaceballs. It's like they've got bottled bottled air that the people buy, and that's how they get fresh air because there's no trees in the town. But something I really liked that we get at the tail end of the flashback story that makes up the bulk of the film is uh, once the Wansler has cut all the trees down and his operation folds, we see that the the town nearby that has become Thneedville because of the success of his, uh, you know, it, it, it's like a boom town. It, the, the company kind of took it over and um, the growth of the company grew the town. Uh, but now that's fallen apart. And, and what's going to become of the town? There are these two like blue collar guys pasting over an old Thneed company billboard. And uh, one of them says, wow, I bet that Thneed guy, you know, he, he made a bunch of money. I wonder what he's doing now. And I wonder what the next big idea is going to be. And then he has this hacking cough and the other worker, the other like street construction. I don't know what the, the term for this guy would be, but um, the guy pasting the billboards. Uh, the other one looks over and says, yeah, I wonder, too, what this next big idea is going to be. And that guy is young O'Hare. Yeah, it's clever. And it's like, oh, OK, so here's another example of someone who's sees a need and fills a need as the inventor in robots 2005 says <laughs> um yeah so this is another example where like maybe there is a spark of merit to capitalism but of course it's going to corrupt absolutely right one idea that the movie doesn't explore that would have been interesting is like if you wanted to have more of a prose of capitalism angle is that basically this boomtown would have been destroyed it seems if not for o'hare basically like he injected more commerce into the the city you know right but o'hare has been on the heels of ted because of course he's asking questions about the truffula trees and what do trees do well they clean the air so that's a threat to o'hare's business to me that was immediately obvious but like towards the end of the movie they're like and the reason he doesn't want you to find out is because trees clean air and everybody gasps like it was a big surprise but i maybe i you know i'm 34 almost 34 watching this and not 12 so you know you might not have thought about that or you, you might not have gone to a science and technology high school where you took advanced bio in ninth grade or something so i don't know yeah so i mean there's a there's a couple things is that o'hare didn't create the situation where there's no trees but he's reached the point where he's realized he wants there to be no trees it's like it's yeah it's in his best interest to make sure trees don't return so this is really the spectrum the maybe the arc that a successful capitalist company is always going to follow is like 
seize on an idea, but then once you've made enough money, make sure others don't compete with you. Right. There's something the Lorex says in the movie that a tree falls the way it leans. And I think that's a really good expression of everything we're talking about here, basically. Like, once once you grow so big, you're inevitably going to lean towards just growing more, consuming more, getting other competition out of your way, and uh, ultimately, you know, maybe you collapse. And one thing that I occurred to me as I was watching was that in some ways, it's not too much of a stretch to say that there's like parallels between Ted and the Onceler, where both of them are like young men who want something. And the Onceler, you know, took things for himself, basically, and ended up making the world worse for everyone. Whereas Ted kind of has this opportunity to give back to everyone else. But there's also kind of this mirror between the Lorax and O'Hare. That's my theory about why they made O'Hare this little tiny guy, is that it, it makes you think of the Lorax a little bit, because the Lorax is all about the protector of the trees, the world, the people, and O'Hare is all about himself and his own profits. Eventually, we get this big chase scene where Ted, who has roped in Taylor Swift and his grandma and his mom, are trying to plant the last tree. I don't know exactly what the plan was here, like... If O'Hare really controls the city this much, planting the one tree wouldn't last that long, but he makes a bold move. And eventually it turns into him with this bulldozer, him being Ted in this case, and he goes and he knocks down the wall of the town, and the whole town is shocked to see that it's a post-apocalyptic wasteland outside of the Needville walls. It's a pretty cool reveal. Yeah, it's just very visually different out there. Yeah. Just bleak and black and like you said german expressionistic then they the the whole town gets this song together let it grow it's kind of a gospel influenced song and they overthrow o'hare and they decide to embrace this communal system of economy where they care more about sharing with all rather than enriching themselves at least that's the generous way of reading it that's the way that i chose to read it a song like this is what the end of City of Ember was missing to me. <laughs> I'll let it grow. Yeah, they didn't strap a little like jet turbine to Bill Murray and fire him off into space. Yeah, he he had his own demise. He gets like eaten by a mole or something. Eaten by a mole, yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty much the way the movie ends. Uh Ted gets his kiss on the cheek from Taylor Swift. You know, happy ending for him. And then we get cut sometime in the future. We see an emotional onceler emerging from his little tower. Now we see his face. He looks like the onceler from young, but now he's old and got bushy facial hair. And down comes the Lorax. He descends back to where the unlost spot was and they embrace. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah, it's nice. And he says, thank you, Ted. This is the uh, the onceler. Like, as he sees the greenery returning, he looks out the window and says, thank you, Ted, as sort of a little Dr. Seuss shout out. Oh. Thanks for showing us the error of our ways, I guess, Theodore Geisel. Thanks for leaving your legacy. 
And that's how the Lorax 2012 ends. So, Brian, any other thoughts before we hit our good things or not so good things? Yeah, I'm ready with a few few good things and and some things that could have been better, maybe. So, I hit most of my good things as we went. I'm with you. The soundtrack is is excellent. I, I overall like the look of the animation. The character designs are hit or miss. Uh, like I, I like some of them, but not all of them. Some of them are really generic, but... Just the look of the movie kind of pops in general. I think it's it's well animated. And I really like that it's 85 minutes. And because it's basically split across two stories, I was like shocked when I looked and that we, I was like, this has got to be the final chase. But whoa, there's only 15 minutes left. And uh, it, it moves pretty quickly. I, I'd rather a movie be too short than too long in most cases. But what about you, Brian? What are, what are some other good things for you? I've said most of what I like. Obviously, the soundtrack, pretty great. Sneedville especially. I, I, to me, nothing quite reaches that level of that stellar opening. But I, I quite like some of the others, like How Bad Can I Be and Let It Grow. There's not a ton of songs, and um, those that are there are pretty good. Also, I want to say, I think giving the Onceler a human face works. At the time, I heard rumblings from, like, Seuss purists of, well, no, the the Onceler is like a Seuss creature. But uh, I don't think he's gotta be. I think uh, having him be a human, it, it kind of highlights that this is a human problem. That you rise and fall on the capitalist wave as a human, who's a cog in the system. You know, one thing that you could debate whether it's a positive or a negative is it really paints the Onceler kind of as a victim of his family, which it's Ed Helms in the role. And he's got a lot of the same issues that Andy Bernard has, where like he's unappreciated by his family. That's interesting. Yeah, I was worried it was really going to lean into that. And certainly like they push him to like take the first act. But I think. There's a whole song about how it's his own doing, basically. And mm-hmm. so that ended up not bothering me too much, but I, I can see what you're saying. It's like, oh, it wasn't his own greed that initially pushed him to do it, when really, like, that was kind of uh, minimizing the one slur's villainy to some extent, you know? But yeah, he basically my point is he's not the Grinch. He's not some monster. He's, like, caught up in the forces of the system. Right, yeah. I agree. I, I think they did. They did right. Like if they had to take a forty-eight page book or however long it is and turn it into a feature-length film, I think they. This is one of the better examples of of expanding it out. I would say that I've seen while still preserving the essential spirit. I mean, compare it to the Grinch live-action one with Jim Carrey. The opening hour of that, it just is like this. I don't know. Did not feel like Grinch to me. So, but this one does kind of feel Lorax-y to me. Yeah, to me as well. What about some not-so-good things, Brian? Well, to me, you said it's, like, very brisk and, and flows well, and I'm glad that you had that experience. On my second watch, I identified some definite padding, which is that they've, like, got action sequences and stuff, multiple chase scenes, and, I mean... It works okay because we do have this, like, tyrant governor who's trying to catch Ted and and stop him from learning the truth, stop him from thinking new thoughts. And so it serves the themes, but 
still it was it was theme parky it was like this could be a ride at universal studios i i completely agree I, even though i, I like the pacing of it there is definitely some real ride trick shot stuff that was made for the 3d and yeah i mean the chase stuff and the goofy bits they go pretty quickly but they're still there and they're definitely filler to some extent yeah and the Onceler storytelling is broken up into chunks kind of arbitrarily. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Ed Helms just suddenly says, okay, go away, come back tomorrow. And it wasn't always clear why they chose a given point to do that at. But that said, I kind of like, because each time Ted goes home, O'Hare has kind of ratcheted up security a little more. Each time he goes back, Ted has to contend with more obstacles. Uh, so that's kind of interesting, but it still just kind of showed the seams a little to me that they needed to expand on a shorter story to reach a longer runtime. Yeah, I think that's true. I also thought that the comedy bits, there's like a lot of comedy around the bear creatures and stuff. I don't recall laughing very often in this movie. Um, I thought it was mostly a miss, but increasingly i find the comedy not working too well for me in uh kids movies so i don't know how much that's this movie itself or maybe i'm just now a 34 almost year old man yeah <laughs> you're not laughing at the six fart sounds in snow day <laughs> no that's right <laughs> or like the bear shoving butter down his throat or whatever yeah one one good thing i forgot to mention the credit sequence is cool it looks like actual Dr. Seuss illustrations. Yeah, it's like a long scrolling paper roll with Dr. Seuss drawings and the trees scrolling by or growing by. Any other thoughts before we rate this film, Brian? No, I think let's do it because we got some more business ahead. We do. We do. And we want to give ourselves time for that. So is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good a one out of eight. To our masterpiece rating, Toward Day Good, which is an 8 out of 8. Brian, is the Lorax from 2012 good? You know what? I was waffling a little bit after I watched it this most recent time, but it gave us so much good discussion, and it's left a positive impression. So what I'm going to say is I'm actually going to give this one a 7 out of 8, an exceptionally good, maybe a lower 7, like it just squeaks by into that category but that's where it's at for me i like this one great soundtrack very colorful but of course contrasted with the darkness of the themes and it doesn't shy away from the wasteland aspect there's a lot going on here and that's where i come down exceptionally good wow yeah i i too was waffling um but a tier lower than you. I'm right on the fence between a a high five and a low six. I think I will, you know, talking talking about it and thinking a little bit more about it, I, I did feel fond of it. I'm going to say it's a low, very good for me. I'm going to give it a, a six out of eight. I, I just think it has lots of clever stuff. It does about as much as you could hope for in terms of expanding a short story into something feature length. I think it's thoughtful. I don't know why I got so much criticism for not being thoughtful. Um, I like the voice acting. I like the music. I think there's just something a little off about it that doesn't quite get into greatness, which is why I'm kind of right in the five realm. But 
I just like I like the kind of uh, darker visuals and the intensity and it just it holds together and uh, I had a good time and I would watch it again. So I think the Lorax is very good. Um, just barely, though. And so that's our our movie of the week, Brian. But one thing that occurs to me we didn't even talk about when we talked about the Dr. Seuss TV specials is there's also a previous adaptation of the Lorax. And that was one of those TV specials. 1972, the year after the, the book was made. So have you ever seen this, Brian? Yes, I didn't get around to rewatching it this week other than I, I tossed it on on Hulu and I got maybe like six minutes in. It's not very long. As I said, all of these are like 20 minutes and change to be a half hour TV block. But like the others, it's pretty much the book with a couple short musical numbers tacked in. And uh, as such, I mean, it's pretty accurate to the story. Another good casting of the Lorax. He's just got kind of like a, a cowboy, like a Western old timer voice. And uh, so what were your thoughts? Did you give this one a watch? Yeah. So when I was a kid, I, I didn't watch all of these specials, but I watched a handful of them. And I also watched some of the made for VHS books to, I don't even know if you call it movie, like basically living books where they just take the illustrations from the book and they like slightly move the animation cells around. So it's like you're getting the illustration, but like slightly moving, but they just literally narrate the text of the book. So that's not what the Lorax is, but I always in my head thought it was one of those, but it actually does have a little bit more production to it. So Brian, have you ever seen those like books come to life type things before? I have. I had a string of Curious George videos that were like that, where they were just reading the book and, and like the very most basic animation of the book illustrations. And I, I watch those all the time. So they definitely yeah. have their place. I've watched them with the girls and stuff before. Yeah. But yeah, this one has a little bit more production values to it. This one really caught my imagination as a kid because it really brings to life the Dr. Seuss imagery. Whereas the 2012 Lorax is like very much a CGI animated thing. If you didn't know it was Dr. Seuss, you might just think it was a CGI movie with some cool designs in it. But the TV special, the, the Lorax from 72 has wild like building designs, production designs. It, it has the thing with the, the Onceler where you never actually see him and has like really clever framings to prevent you from seeing him. This one really captured my imagination as a kid. Rewatching it, I liked the business growing sequence. It made me think of the computer game Factorio, where you build out like this uh, ever-growing uh, factory. It's like almost a puzzle game, but it's like a, a sandbox where you're trying to build the most productive factory that you can. And just the way that he has all these contraptions of ways to like get more trees, cut down more trees, build more needs um, is very cool. What I didn't remember is that it's got like the wonkiest 70s funk score just going on nonstop throughout the movie. And it really pulled me out is it's like very 70s. <laughs> the the music is you should go watch it again, Brian, because I think you'll get a kick out of the, the soundtrack. I mean, maybe maybe it'll blend in a little bit more for you, but it, it was kind of distracting for me. That's funny. Yeah, the Halloween is Grinch night is like very psychedelic and, and definitely feels 70s. Mm. Um, but uh, 
actually, now that you bring it up, I'm reminded of a line that I like in the 1972 Lorax special when uh, the Onceler is talking to himself when he's uh, he's on the up and up and he's he's reaching his peak and he is reflecting on some of the bad things he's had to do. And he says, you ought to be locked in a hooskow, you should. The things that you do are completely ungood. But if you didn't do them, then someone else would. Mmm, that's right. That's good. So it's like he's just seizing an opportunity that he sees. And if, if he didn't grab it, then somebody else would be the tyrant. Are you fresh enough on this that you would be willing to throw a rating on it, Brian? Or would that be disingenuous? I'm Yeah, I would probably have to revisit. But, but where is it at for you? I have it pretty much the same boat, actually. The same tier. I would probably land on a high five rather than a low six, just slightly below the one that we watched. It's got different strengths and weaknesses. I, I like it when it's this close to the Seuss because it really, you feel all the Seussiness in a way you don't exactly in the CGI one, but the the music pulled me out a little bit and it just feels a little bit slighter overall. It's not the highest production values, but it's uh, not the best animation, but it's still a pleasure to look at. So Yeah. I'd likely be in a similar boat. I'd probably fall on a six or something. Uh, potential episode title, Close to the Seuss. Close to the Seuss. You like that? <laughs> I like it. Okay. Keep that in mind. And that brings us to our our top five. So, listeners, I encourage you to, to join our Discord. It's picked up a lot over the past couple of weeks. We had a couple more people join, and mostly people I know uh, already. And we talked a little bit about the top five some. So we did a top five Pixar movies a couple weeks ago. And, you know, I thank everyone who gave us some feedback on that. And I, I still don't think we have it quite right here. It's a format that's a work in progress. Um, I don't know the way that we gracefully mesh a full movie's worth of discussion with a top five list. But I encourage you to join us and give us some feedback on what parts of these episodes you find interesting any ideas on how we can kind of structure it and format it to, to get the most out of it? Because I really like thinking about these top fives. It's really been invading my brain over the past week, what what I was going to pick for this list. Brian, any thoughts about our top fives in general before we, we jump into this specific one? Yeah, well, so some context is just that ever since the beginning, I've been pitching top fives pretty much as a possibility. Um and Dan has kind of sold me on the idea of like each installment that we do kind of being a new entry in the canon. Like you could have your Criterion collection, DVD collection up alongside your The Goods DVD collection, <laughs> um, which obviously a top five listicle article episode is is not conducive to that. So, yeah, we're kind of mulling it over. We're kind of deciding what we want to do and what we want to be. But I think they're fun, too. And if you decide you want to join our Discord, go to thegoodsfilmpodcast.com, and there's a button there that'll bring you to our, our Discord. We'd love to have you. So, Brian, what I asked you to do was prepare a list of your top five favorite songs from movies. You could maybe construct that sentence slightly differently, slightly more elegantly, top five movie songs, something like that. The reason I like top five favorite songs from movies, two things there. One is that for me, at least, I wanted to emphasize the favorite aspect as opposed to 
things that are like canonically great and great in the way that you might otherwise use the word great. I just wanted to pick the ones that impacted me the most and that I had the strongest things to say about and to discuss. That was kind of my my perspective going into choosing these songs. Right. So when you told me that uh, roundabout Wednesday of this week and we're recording here on Saturday night, it really helped steer me to forming a list. A couple provisos that Dan tacked onto were that this could not come from the credits of the film only. And uh, it also was highly recommended that it be a song that originated in the film uh, rather than just one featured on the soundtrack. With hopefully the exception that like if it's an adaptation of a pre-existing musical that that counts because that's going to be the case for some of mine. Right. And a couple of expanded thoughts on that. So what I wanted to avoid, and this was in part just to like help me narrow down my list, are needle drops of any sort. When I say needle drop, I mean when a song already known or expected to be known to the listener is piped into a movie to either use that song for emotional texture, emotional context, or in some cases, juxtaposition. So like I, I wanted it to be something that was not an already known song that was brought in. Uh, another thing I was looking for was not necessarily not a cover. So I mean it's kind of the same idea, like something that was uh, designed for the the purpose of the movie that we were watching. Or as you said, it could be if it was like for a stage musical or something that was then brought to the film. It's still the same idea because it was written for that purpose basically. Uh, it's just filmed instead of on stage. I, and I also, all of mine have lyrics and I, I wanted all of mine to have lyrics. I wanted it to be like a forefront song. So it's like the song itself is the focus. I suppose it doesn't have to have lyrics. It could be like a wordless section, but you're still focused on the music. So those were kind of the things that were going through my brain as I as we were assembling this list. So that's why it's favorite rather than greatest songs from movies rather than movie songs because you know there's a lot of songs in movies that are not from that movie right yeah not to beat around the bush too much longer but i originally was trying to tackle it as like objective greatest most important most pivotal and what would that canon look like and so a, a little of that influence crept in but when you said you were going for favorite that helped steer me, helped boil it down, uh, helped make me more confident that my list was acceptable uh, because it is tailored to me and uh, that I just had things to say about each of these songs I'm about to talk about. Cool. Well, let's jump into it, Brian. Should I go first or do you want to go first? Let's have you go first because I know that you didn't actually end up capping it at five, did you? You're, <laughs> uh, you got six to talk about, I think. <laughs> yeah. So uh, tell us what what falls what falls for you just outside of the pantheon. What's number six? What I will put at number six is so. Oh, here's one more proviso. I have to have seen the movie. So that was a rule. Uh, which <laughs> I mean, is there are there cases where I guess there could be cases where you really like a movie song but haven't watched the film yet. Oh yeah, there's so many clips I've seen on YouTube of songs from movies without having seen the whole movie. I, I, that's one of my, like, I'll play songs from movies when I'm bored at work and just like half pay attention to the song, half pay attention to work. And 
YouTube inevitably re- recommends songs from movies I haven't seen. In fact, plenty of movies I've watched have been because of being recommended songs that way. So, yeah, I guess I I came across someday from Zombies One uh, that way. So, it it happens. So. Here's what I'm going to put at number six. And the only reason I'm going to put it at number six rather than number five is because it's skirting the line on if it's a cover or not. So this is in Sister Act. Have you seen Sister Act, Brian? No, I never have. So Sister Act is a movie starring Whoopi Goldberg, where she essentially goes into a witness protection type program. And she's like a Vegas singer very much living the the indulgent life as in Vegas and witnesses a crime. And because she's, she's someone that they might hunt down. She goes and she hides with a bunch of nuns. What do you call it? a convent in a, a convent for nuns, but it's in the city and it's actually a pretty good movie. And I'd like to bring it. It's on my long list of movies to bring to the pod at some point. Cause I think it does some, some fun things, but basically these nuns, have this horrible horrible choir they're so bad at singing and you know what she was a vegas singer she knows music and so she's pretending to be a nun and um she basically becomes the head of the new choir and it's like a great build-up so we see them performing in church and they do this terrible rendition of hail holy queen with like i actually laugh every time i watch the bad version because they're like singing out of tune and like arrhythmically and it's just like you couldn't construct it to be more humorously bad singing and then they have these this great scene where Whoopi Goldberg takes over the choir teaches the different nuns to the spirit of singing and like things they need to do to kind of overcome why they're bad at singing and then also emphasizes that like singing is a way to like express yourself and build confidence in yourself And in particular, there's this one nun who is very, very meek and very quiet. And like Whoopi Goldberg gets her to uh, like sing loud and sing confidently. And then we don't actually hear them sing for a while. And we get like kind of a montage of them practicing, but we don't actually hear them. And then it cuts to another church service where they sing again. And it's Hail Holy Queen. So this is like a well-known church hymn. Again, why I'm disqualifying it. But the reason I think it almost counts is because what they do is they do the a beautiful hymn version. It's like instantly it's so beautiful. And the whole like audience, it's like a basically the, the church, there's no one there. But people are like looking around at each other like what? How did what changed? How come they sound good all of a sudden? Oh, and the head nun is a very uptight woman played by Maggie Smith. She's basically Professor McGonagall. It's great. And so they sing the beautiful thing. And then it stops and Maggie Smith gets like a very nice smile on her face. And then Whoopi Goldberg stomps her feet and the piano player goes into this boogie woogie piano rhythm. And there's like clapping and stomping and stuff. And they sing this like R&B gospel pop rearranged version of Hail Holy Queen. That is it sounds so, so good. And like the one kind of meek nun gets like these really beautiful solos in there and it's it's just a delight and it's also a great payoff on like the characters and the themes and it makes me so happy every time i watch it or listen to it so that's my number six is going to be hail holy queen from from sister act so the the nearly made the list for me that sounds great i gotta check that out yeah i think it's on disney plus believe it or not because uh they acquired the fox library so 
It was up there at some point. It's it's worth watching. I've never seen the sequel. So that's the only one where they take a church hymn and they make it like poppy that I can think of from the movie. They do some where they take pop songs and make them more hymn-like. But I really like this idea of taking uh, like a hymn song and, and making it sound like more like something you'd hear on the radio. So and of course, Professor McGonagall gives like a very annoyed look because they're sacrileging, sacrileging, what's the phrase? I don't know. But uh, by doing like this, you know, doing this pop style, dancey, upbeat thing during a very solemn mass. So it's, it's a fun one. I, I recommend it. Do you want to do your number five? I actually came prepared with a number six, so... Okay. (laughs) Uh, The one that falls just outside the official five for me is a product of when I went into this thinking, oh, it's got to be the great film songs. And so it's Somewhere Over the Rainbow from Wizard of Oz. Oh, beautiful. This, to me, uh, was the one I thought might show up on both of our lists. It's just kind of the quintessential wanting song. Alan Menken talks about, you know, principles of Broadway songs. You got to have the thing about what the protagonist wants. It's when they're dreaming about what's out there. What is out in the larger world that I could achieve, that I could go and explore and see? Like this to me is the the key example of that because it's leaving behind the sepia tone farmland for the crazy rainbow fantasy scape and uh, what lies ahead. And it, it's very muted and toned down compared to what it we're about to witness. But it's it's just, it's a great melody and it, a big part of film history. Yeah. Judy Garland, she was 17 when she starred in Wizard of Oz. That blows my mind. That's a phenomenal performance in the movie and in the song. My wife and I take turns on which kid we put to bed. And our two-year-old, this is one of her lullabies. So sometimes I sing the song to her every night. It's it's a really pretty one. Nice. Where are you at for number five? Uh, so my number five, it makes my official top five. I, I almost cut it because it's debatably a movie song. So the thing that it comes from does have a letterboxed entry, but I, I would entertain the argument that it is not a movie. The reason that I had to have it on here, though, is because I needed an example of an opening banger. That's something I needed. That's my one of my favorite uh, sub-formats, sub-genres of movie songs is when you have an opener that just floors you, like like you were saying with Needville. So that Needville was on my sh- short list as a candidate for that. Carrying the banner from Newsies on there for me as a candidate. Also, Belle from Beauty and the Beast, another example of a perfect opening song that just blows you away. The one I'm going with is the opener to a very Potter musical, and that is Gotta Get Back to Hogwarts. So this is a, I don't think have we've ever talked Starkid on the pod. We've never talked Starkid on the podcast because to me it's debatable. Uh, when I put a Starkid show on my top hundred movies, I coupled it with Dr. Horrible, which I guess also debatable whether that's a movie. Um but I thought if I stuck them together, they add up. So Star Kid was, I think it was University of Michigan. I don't know exactly what it was, but it was a, it's a student theater troupe that, that wrote these parody musicals and happened to record them. And they had really good songwriting. They had an incredible cast, including Darren Chris, who has gone on to a Hollywood career. And 
man, they're they're a lot of fun, but this opener tops it for me. So it's from a Harry Potter musical, which is a parody of Harry Potter. It kind of brings in elements mainly from the first, second, and fourth book into it. But I, the reason I really love this is it's like this huge panoramic number where we meet kind of the parody versions of all the characters as they're getting ready to go to Hogwarts at the start of the school year. And it opens with Harry Potter, played by Darren Chris. Then we get Ron, he comes in and it's a duet. Then we get Hermione come in and then it's a trio. Then we get more and more cast members. Uh, it, I, the reason I love it is for a few reasons. One is it really, to me, captures the fun and spirit and potential of like these amateur projects where it's just got so much personality and quirk. It's like, it really feels like a very distinct voice, not professionally edited with lots of kind of silly throwaways in there, but like still charming kind of epitomizes that to me, but even more so this opening number stands by itself as like a love letter to the excitement of picking up a Harry Potter book or really picking up any sort of escapist fantasy and getting immersed in it. It's all that I want and it's all that I need at Hogwarts and just just like a, a joy in story and and escaping in, in there that, that I really love. Draco Malfoy comes in at one point played by this woman named Lauren Lopez. She's probably like 4'10 and she has on this ridiculous blonde wig and she talks in this like dramatic stilted way that's very funny and makes you think of Tom Felton from the Harry Potter movies. And then it it ends with like this whole chorus kind of singing this this great melody back to witches and wizards and magical feasts to sorry, witches and wizards and magical beasts, goblins and ghosts and magical feasts. It's all that I want and it's all that I need here at Hogwarts. Lots of fun wordplay in it. I, I love this song. Probably my top 100 favorite songs of all time, period, if you were to count that. So that's my, my number five, Brian. Oh, man. A couple of things about that is that if I allowed myself multiple opening bangers, I think all five would probably just be opening bangers. Uh, I started out with like a short list of 35, not not very short, short list, and uh, Carrying the Banner and, and Bell were both on there. I did not consider Team Star Kid for my selections just because I did want to limit myself, but I love Team Starkid. I think they're great. Just really, really quality indie projects, and they've got some great ones that aren't even parodies of existing stuff. I mean, there's one called Me and My Dick that's pretty good. Love that one too, yeah. That was their second one. That was their follow-up to the Harry Potter one. And it's so clever. And uh, yeah, better and like more wholesome than it sounds. And then uh, one of my favorites that they did was called um, Starship, which was a space sci-fi one that it draws on stuff from like Avatar and uh, Pocahontas, but it's it, it's really good. Um, and then they did sequels to the, the Harry Potter show and the third one, A Very Potter Senior Year, is like a farewell to the franchise. Of course, before they dredged up um, Fantastic Beasts and the new Wizarding World stuff that's coming out now, but it ends with a reprise of uh, the Get to Go to Hogwarts song. Oh, man. Where it's, it's Harry sending his kids to Hogwarts. Now that you get to go to Hogwarts, now that you get to go to school, now that you get to go to Hogwarts... 
I hope you find that swimming pool. <laughs> and it's just, it's like, I was tearing up because, you know, it was already like six or seven years after the first one and I'd been following along with all their shows. And man, it's powerful because it was also like they dragged Darren Chris back um, in the wake of his Glee career to, to show up. They like put that one on at a convention. And so it's a goodbye to Harry and a goodbye to the Harry actor. And just in the the aftermath of that they're all you know still making stuff and and climbing and and moving on really powerful love team star kid yeah so it's kind of a cheat to count it as a movie but it's borderline it has a letterboxed entry so i was counting it i'm i'm glad we got to finally talk about it yeah okay but we gotta keep trucking guys we got multiple songs we got to talk about so number five for me is they both reached for the gun from chicago you ever seen this one no i've seen is this the one that has like the cell block blues or something like that yeah cell block tango is kind of the one that gets super hyped i don't think that's the best song on the soundtrack uh like it's not even top three for me but the the gimmick in this movie is it's about a trial in jazz age chicago of a woman who killed her lover it intersperses scenes of what's really happening in the real world. And those are, are very professionally shot as well. And like in a realistic style, but then whenever it goes into a musical number, each one is presented as a different kind of theatrical act. And so like there's a, a real world a diegesis. And then when it, you get the non-diegetic song, it's this stage act. And so for they both reached for the gun, it's described as the press conference rag. So you've got the lawyer, kind of the the shyster defense attorney, very Saul Goodman. Um, this is a character called Billy Flynn, and he's played by Richard Gere. And he's great. But uh, so he's defending the, the woman, the murderess, uh, who's played by Renee Zellweger. And he's hosting a press conference to sort of present the argument that he's going to give in court of how it's, it's not her fault. She was fighting for her life, fighting like a tiger, but because he's going to be putting the words into the mouths of the journalists with this press conference, it's presented as a ventriloquist and puppet act. And so he's got Renee Zellweger on his lap as his ventriloquist dummy. Oh man. He's puppeting her around, but then also all the journalists who are listening and like asking questions have marionette strings strapped to them. And so they're, they're being puppets as well. And like, as the song builds, eventually you see up in the rafters of the stage, there's a giant Richard gear up there operating the marionette strings. So he's like in multiple places at once being the puppet master and just really well edited and very well performed uh, with Renee Zellweger as this dummy. And just, you know, she's got like the soulless eyes as she's being jerked around. Really cool. And pretty much every song in the movie does something like this. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I got to see this one. So my number four, this is the one that I wanted to not include because it's like the most canonical and the least personal to me. But if I have to be honest about this, this one deserves to be here. And also it checks two very important boxes for me. 
that are, are two genres or, or uh, functions of music that are very important to me. One is the duet. I really love a good duet. I, I cannot believe I did not make space. Like this is number seven for me is you're the one that I want from Greece, which the only reason I kicked it off the list is because I care more about the song itself than like the scene that it comes from. But that's like another one that's in my top 100 favorite songs ever. Just a, a awesome pop song. A great duet. John Travolta, Olivia Newton-John. Anyways, the one I actually did pick, it's a duet. And also it's a Renaissance Disney song. Probably my favorite Disney song period. Although, man, Reflection is up there for me from Mulan. Uh, Part of Your World is up there for me from Little Mermaid. And honestly, like Part of Your World and this one are neck and neck for my number one Renaissance Disney song for me. That is A Whole New World from Aladdin. The third important box that it checks for me is uh, it's a Leah Salonga performance. So she is, in my opinion, the the best vocalist Disney's ever had performing a song. Uh, She is Mulan, so she does Reflection. And she is Jasmine. And so she does A Whole New World. The fact that they only got her to do one song each, even though she was the title character in Mulan, I think is a travesty. I would have had a whole soundtrack of Leah Salonga tunes. She just captures everything. She can capture like eight emotions in a single line. And there's like parts of reflection is only like a minute and a half long. And it just blows me away how much it captures in there. And in a whole new world is the same way. She's got just this great princess quality to the way she sings, but also like this confidence and strength, very expressive. I think she's awesome. Brad Kane does the male vocals and he is terrific. There's something very romantic about the way that he sings. They You can actually see clips of them recording. And it's actually, sometimes when you see clips of people recording, they like just paste over the finalized product. And so it like looks like they're recording, but you're not actually hearing the uh, what they're singing in that time. But if you go find the clips on YouTube of the recording of A Whole New World, it's, it doesn't actually match the studio once you're actually hearing what they're singing in that time. And it just gives you more of an impression of how untalented these, these singers are. I absolutely love this song. You probably know it. So I won't talk about its role in the story or anything. Uh, Great romantic ballad. You know, the lyrics are kind of generically romantic, but work well enough. It's to me, it's really about the soaring sound and the terrific vocal performances. Just an absolute masterclass masterpiece. Great Disney song. I love Disney songs. They steal your heart. They continue to, even though I'm a 34-year-old man. And this, to me, is the best of them. Yeah. A couple years ago for the blog, we did a deep dive, wrote out a list of top 50 Disney songs by group consensus. And A Whole New World ended up topping that list. I definitely dug that one out and consulted it when I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about here tonight. I'll say a duet that, for me, just barely ended up on the cutting room floor was... Let's Duet from Walk Hard, where uh, it's a a duet between John C. Riley and Jenna Fisher, and just every line is a super raunchy double entendre. Oh, man. Because obviously it's it's let's do it, but duet. And uh, yeah, just ostensibly wholesome, but also potentially totally filthy. That's that's great. I got to... Man, I finally got to watch that movie. I really got to get around to it. I don't know why I haven't. I know I'm going to enjoy it. 
Yeah. But no, my number four is called I'll Take You Dreaming. And it's from The Court Jester, which is a Danny Kay vehicle from, I believe it's 1956. And it's a medieval story. It's going to get an episode someday. It's going to be one of my picks at, at some point. But the the story here is that there's a minstrel, like a carnival performer, who is part of a band of merry men who's hanging out, serving this uh, Robin Hood type outlaw out in the woods. And uh, at one point, the the group that this Robin Hood guy leads come into possession of the rightful king of England, who's a baby. And he's been uh, usurped. So there's a, a false king on the throne. And they have this baby. They got to keep the baby safe. And uh, someday return him to his rightful role as the liege. And the the jester, this bard guy, Danny Kay, wants a bigger role in the organization. And so one day he gets his chance. He's going to uh, put on a disguise. And he's got to transport the baby uh, to somewhere else, another safe place. And uh, while they're in transit, he, he's traveling kind of with the Maid Marian character, and they stop at a windmill overnight uh, to get in out of the rain. And he is um, holding the baby, and he sings a lullaby. And it's about how... Well, what is what is the line? He says, We may not find gold or silver, but a richer prize waits for you behind the rainbow if you close your eyes no behind the raindrops because it's it's raining here let me think for just a second because he says then one day when you go dreaming when you're very old though your crown be rich with rubies diamonds set in gold none will shine as bright as the star will find tonight so really what it's about is that, you know, this kid is a king. He's going to amount to things way greater than this common carnival performer ever will. But here in this moment, they're sharing the experience of dreaming. It's like everybody has dreams, no matter who you are. You know, he, he's putting the kid to bed. This is not his kid, but it's, it's like this bonding moment. Um, and it's always been really powerful to me. Man, I, I, this, I've known you like this movie. I didn't know it was a musical. I, I don't know why I didn't know that, The, the Court Jester. <laughs> That's the only reason that I've hesitated. It's one of several where I was like about to toss it on and like, no, I've just done like two musicals in a row. I can't have the next one also be a musical. <laughs> it's not super musical, but there's definitely songs sprinkled throughout it. So That sounds really lovely. I, I got to check this one out. I'll, I'll probably wait till you pick it. So at some point you can pick it. I want to see this. Yeah. yeah, I've I've thought about like as my friends have had kids when I was doing Gauntly, uh, my my public access TV show. I was thinking, you know, I gotta have somebody bring their baby on so that I can sing this song. Um, <laughs> it ha it never quite happened, but uh, oh man, maybe a reason to keep having kids. Yeah, <laughs> if there was ever a a reunion, maybe I can bring my now two year old on. Although I don't know if it have quite the same effect. Yeah, yeah. There's a narrow window of time. Haven't seen it, but it sounds like a good pick for sure. My number three. So I mentioned I have the criteria that I have to have seen the film. So 
this week I actually watched this movie because I had not seen this movie prior to this week. So there's a musician named Stuart Murdoch, and he's Scottish, and he formed the indie pop band Bell and Sebastian in the, the early 90s. And they were have been a really influential indie pop band just around forever. And he had this idea at one point that basically he wanted to write a musical. So uh, he was going to write a musical that kind of reflected his mental health troubles and his kind of growing up on the poorer side of the British Isles. And so he, what he did is very unusual. I've never heard of this type of model before. He wrote the soundtrack album before he wrote the movie. So he wrote all the songs to it and released it in 2009 called God Help the Girl. And then over the next five years, he got funding. So now he's just a musician, you know, he writes songs. He's a creative type for sure, but he's a musician. He got the funding to direct and write the movie as well. I was thinking of uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower where Stephen Chbosky inserted himself as both the writer and the director of that. It's kind of the same idea here, but I would say that uh, overall, Stuart Murdoch was less successful when he made God Help the Girl in 2014. Like you can tell as someone who didn't really know how to write a script and also who didn't really know how to direct a movie. It's not horrible. I would probably give it good-ish if we were to watch it. What really elevates it is the quality of the music. There's just absolutely lovely pop numbers all throughout it. And it stars Emily Browning, who you might know if you've seen the American Gods TV show or if you ever saw the movie Sucker Punch. Uh, she's this she's got like this kind of classic presence, uh, like she should be in French New Wave films or something like that. But the one song on there that that has always just stuck with me ever since I first saw the clip is the song called I'll Have to Dance with Cassie, sung by Emily Browning. It doesn't have much to do with the plot itself. It's kind of like a, a break from the plot because the idea is that they're forming this band. And so a lot of the, some of the songs are like diegetic where it's what the characters are thinking. And sometimes it's like they're performing a song. And this one, even though it relates to Cassie as a character, it's still basically that she's just performing this song. And it's this absolute dream of an indie pop song about the thrill of being young and in love and or wanting to be in love, I guess. It's a story about a girl who goes out dancing and is trying to find the dream boy, but the the right song never comes up, the right boy never comes around, and so she just has to dance with her friend, Cassie. Beautiful, beautiful song, very catchy. Lots of clever little things in there, and it uh, fits nicely into the movie, too. I like the clip. They kind of saturate up the hues, and... Um, they're dancing around and it's like staged like a 50s sock hop type thing. I, I love this song so much. I, I listen to it all the time, e even now. And um, that's my number three. I'll have to dance with Cassie from God Help the Girl. Great. Well, I'm right with you there. And at number three, I also have a song about the thrill of young love. This is Tonight from West Side Story. Uh, as heard in 1961, and then again just this past year, uh, 2021, the film by Steven Spielberg. And something that struck me, I guess I didn't really remember it from uh, 
the the older film, but the whole story takes place over the course of a weekend. And uh, of course, it's a reinterpretation of Romeo and Juliet. So it's about, obviously, Romeo and Juliet has feuding families. This is rival gangs. Uh, one is a gang of white teenagers and one is Puerto Ricans. And it's uh, set around the time that the show is originally created in like 1957. But it, tonight is the, the big ballad, uh, Tony and Maria meeting and expressing their love on a balcony, uh, fitting for Romeo and Juliet. It's like a fire escape. And when we were talking 13th year uh, a couple episodes ago, uh, you talked about how that made you remember like what your expectations were for what high school was going to be. Just because, you know, it had a popular kid in it and, like, you thinking about what it would be to be a popular high school student. Right. Well, West Side Story was formative on me because they put it on at our high school freshman year. Freshman year, of course, being the year that everybody reads Romeo and Juliet. So, like, that was very much in my head. Uh, and this song very much in my head as well. And... Uh, where it comes in the movie was so they meet at a dance like just prior to this yeah it's like friday night and they meet and then they they rendezvous on this fire escape later in the night and they sing this song and it's about how like today the world was just an address a place for me to live in no better than all right but here you are and what was just a world is a star tonight it's like everything has changed because of this electric teenage puppy love meeting. And it's it's going to change everything because now the the worlds are gonna collide. I've I've seen the the nineteen sixty one version. I really want to catch up with the the twenty twenty one version. And yeah, you're right. This song is phenomenal. Great pick here. Yeah. To me it's an example. This was one that was on my list, even when I was trying for like objectivity of just big, important historic film music numbers. Right. But uh, I think it fits here as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, number two. What do you got? Yeah, so so I, I will say my numbers about 10 down through numbers three, number three, I could have put in just about any order. The ones that almost also made the cut, Dracula's Lament from uh, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. We're all in this together from High School Musical. Either one of Mrs. Robinson or Sound of Silence from The Graduate. There, there's a whole bunch that are kind of all in the same approximate tier, which is why I had a really hard time narrowing this down because I wanted to talk about all of them and I feel pretty strongly about all of them. But the top two were distinctly top two, at least in terms of personal favorites. So that's the ones we're hitting here. So number two for me is my number one all time struck me at the exact moment where it was absolute wish fulfillment for me. Just couldn't have been more wish fulfillment to me. And that is from 1995's A Goofy Movie, Stand Out, which is the song by Powerline. So if you haven't seen A Goofy Movie, it's centered around this uh, basically a road trip to a concert by a musician named Powerline, who is a stand-in. He looks a little bit more like Prince, but his ubiquity and popularity is kind of more of a Michael Jackson. And he's voiced by Tevin Campbell, who sings two songs on the soundtrack that are like 
sound like 90s pop songs, like R&B style pop songs. One of them is called Eye to Eye, which is the song that appears at the actual concert that the movie is centered around. But the opening before the road trip starts, it's the end last day of the school year. And Max is in love with a girl named Roxanne at his high school. And he has this dream of basically doing a grand gesture to express his love for her. And what he's going to do, it, it doesn't really make sense if you didn't grow up with it and where it seemed like the most obvious possible thing. He's going to take over the last day of school assembly and basically use it to lip sync perform to another one of these Powerline songs uh, called Stand Out. And of course, the lyrics are are clever enough that they sound like a pop song, but they also have to do with him wanting to stand out above the crowd, even if he has to shout out loud, till his is the only face you'll see, gonna stand out till you notice me. Um, I, I changed the my to his in there for the sake of completing the sentence, but um, it, it fits nicely with it. And this, I love this song so much, so catchy. In 2004, I made a list of my 100 favorite songs of all time. I had this song at number four on this list. So for decades now, this has been a favorite of mine. Just this this awesome song and this great like cinematic moment that truly stuck in my brain is like, this was the ultimate way to like do some romantic gesture in the most dramatic way. And so for me, when I was, uh, you know, I saw that movie when I was seven in theaters and like from basically late elementary school through middle school through the beginning of high school, this was like, to me, just my fantasy in my head of like the girl that I had a crush on, whoever it was that year, that month, I imagined some gesture like this. So uh, stand out, a Goofy movie, number two for me. I knew Goofy movie was coming somewhere in there. All right. So for me, I mean, realistically, you could almost swap two and one. I, I kind of just accepted as I went along that if I framed it as favorites, no one could really tell me I was wrong. But I'm probably always going to be grappling with the fact that this is just such a big ass. Come up with the five top songs, such a big request that I, I, I'm i sure I'm going to think of a song immediately after we're done recording here and just uh, be like, oh, I blew it. But number two for me, what I've got penciled in is Substitutionary Locomotion from the 1971 Disney film Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And it's not because the song is super great, although it is by uh, master songwriters, the Sherman Brothers, who brought us a lot of great Disney music in the 60s and 70s. They did Mary Poppins. But it's because of the scene that this number leads into. So uh, Bedknobs and Broomsticks is about an English witch played by Angela Lansbury, who lives in the, the modern era, uh, at least more modern than you might think of uh, witches being in, uh, because she is living in the 40s in England, and her goal is that she's learning magic to aid the British war effort and prevent Nazi invasion. So, like, a lot going on here. But the spell that she most wants to learn is called Substitutionary Locomotion. And once she finally gets the pieces together over the course of the movie to learn the spell and cast it, she finds out that what it does is bring inanimate objects to life. Which, 
I mean, that's kind of the spirit of film just boiled down into an essence is is bring the inanimate to life. I mean, motion picture is an illusion. It's it's still images and uh, brought to life because you play them back fast enough. But they, they cast the spell once and it brings like random items of clothing to life, like a pair of gloves and a pair of shoes. And they're jumping around, dancing around, terrorizing the household. But what brings it to the next level is... Uh, you know, the Nazis do invade. They they storm ashore into this little village and they capture the characters and seal them up of all places in a military history museum, uh, which is like in this little castle. So it's full of armor and they cast the spell and bring this whole castle full of armor to life. And this army of ghost armor marches out to fight the Nazis. And it's not just knights. It's like, red coat uniforms and like i guess uh cavaliers or something like musketeer looking dudes with feather hats and long hair and there's um there's bagpipers and um yeah horse armor too that and all of it is marching along with nobody inside it so fantastic special effects some i still wonder how they even did it um but like the horses there's no you know it's just like coverings for the horses that's like floating along through the air and there's phantom drums and trumpets floating through the air and just a whole great 10 minute battle sequence of ghost armor versus nazis and just wow really cinematic and there is a song that leads into it so i i think it counts um, it's an image that, like, I would always fast forward to the end of the tape when I was a little kid, um, and just watch this bit. It's like a two-hour movie, and I would watch these last ten minutes over and over. Uh, it never left me. It's like a, just a magic moment of filmmaking. This is another one that's high on your all-time rankings that I've never seen, that I really need to see. Bed knobs and broomsticks. That's, that sounds pretty awesome. Well, now here we are at the big one, Dan. Yeah, and actually what you said about uh, fast-forwarding to watch this clip in the movie actually reminded me of a Goofy movie, because what I used to do during the summer is I would turn on a Goofy movie at the start of the day, and then when the movie finished, I would just rewind to the start of Stand Out. So I cut off the first 12 minutes or something, and then watch the last hour of the movie again. And I would I don't know what my record was for most times in one day, probably three times watching the movie but i liked the music so much that i would just rewind to that one spot so i know exactly what you mean about like finding that one spot in the movie and and going right there so um so anyways number one so for me there was never a question what song was going to be number one it was the first one i thought of what the question was is which version which scene of that thing you do would be the one that i would highlight because that thing you do is the title of a movie, one of my favorite movies, uh, perhaps my favorite movie. I've often said it's my favorite movie. I would probably put it at number one right now. Like I said, I kind of have three in contention. Uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Toy Story 3 being another one of those uh, that are like among my three favorite movies ever. And that thing you do is it's directed and written by Tom Hanks, who, you know, he's only directed two movies. And this one was his first one. And he hired Adam Schlesinger, who is my favorite songwriter of all time, 
He's the songwriter for uh, Fountains of Wayne and about a billion other things. I did a podcast on him when he died uh, from COVID early in 2020. He was one of the first celebrity deaths of COVID, Adam Schlesinger. I always struggle with his name. It's a mouthful. A lot of consonants and sounds there. He, he would write these perfect facsimiles of whatever style you needed. And in this case, it was like uh, mid-60s Beatles knockoff. So these guys are one-hit wonders, kind of riding on the coattails of the Beatles in Erie, Pennsylvania, and centers around a gentleman named Guy. He's the drummer of this band. And we kind of follow the, the way the song comes together, then the rise, and then what happens at the end. And it's just a very pleasant movie. It's just such a cheerful movie. There's a little bit of drama, but it's nothing too dark. It's just a nice movie. And it's so funny. Such great dry humor. Very briskly edited. I strongly recommend if you've never seen it. Watch the theatrical cut, not the extended cut. The extended cut is nice, but it loses the zippiness of the theatrical cut. Just an absolutely perfect pop song. You couldn't improve. It's so catchy. 10 out of 10. Uh, toward a good song probably in my top 25 songs ever. And they perform it a lot in the movie. So it's good that it's good because you hear it about 12 times in the film at different, in different ways The the version that I'm going to go with. So there's a lot of references to the Beatles in this movie. And one of those references is that the Beatles first hit was when they took a ballad and they sped it up. And I think it's love me do was the Beatles one. I'm not hundred percent sure. But basically, they're performing this song that we had just heard as a ballad. And Guy, for whatever reason, starts the song at like a uh, up-tempo pace, like real fast. And they hadn't practiced it that way. They practiced it as a ballad. And so the first 20 seconds of the song, the rest of the band is trying to adjust to the fast tempo. And they gradually get into the groove of it. And they really capture the magic of like something just spontaneously being perfect. And it's so good. I love it so much. This scene in particular is maybe the best or second best scene in the movie. Also up there when they first hear their song on the radio for the first time and they're like joyously hopping around. I almost wanted to highlight that scene, but that one's less about the song itself and more about like the character's euphoria. And so even though the song's kind of there, it's not about the song itself. Whereas the when they perform it for the first time, you're really kind of hearing and focusing on the song and there's just something kind of fresh about it. And man, I love this movie. I, I love this song, uh, this scene, every shot is perfect. Every, not, not a cut is wasted. Uh, I wouldn't change a single thing about it. It looks beautiful. That thing you do my favorite movie song ever full stop. No question about it. So there you go. That's my number one. Uh, Brian, what is your number one favorite song from a movie? Cool. So, I know I said that I was going to be wrong when I put this list together, and I, I don't know if I can fully say this is like the best or even my most favorite selection. But with that said, this is kind of my stand-in for any number of opening bangers, as you said. It's a song by Stephen Schwartz, the uh, lyricist and composer. What I've penciled in here at number one is Deliver Us the opener of The Prince of Egypt, the first film released by DreamWorks. Have you seen The Prince of Egypt before, Dan? I saw it around when it came out, but it's been so long. And a lot of people have brought this up recently. It came up on the Discord not too long ago. My brother, Will, 
who has been a guest is on the discord and he was encouraging me to go watch it again. Cause he had just had a conversation about it or something. So I really need to go see this again. So I'll say, um, I really just like the Exodus story. I put 10 commandments from 1956 on my hundred film favorites. And it was like uh, number 40 or something or heading into the thirties. But Prince of Egypt is really good. It makes sense to me that it was the first DreamWorks film and I mean, say what you will, it's it's not a new conspiracy theory that um, people of Jewish descent are very influential in various movie studios. But the DreamWorks founders, you've got Jeffrey Katzenberg, Steven Spielberg and David Geffen kind of splintering away from other studios they were working with to come together and form DreamWorks. And the first movie they make, it's like they were bent on making it really Jewish. And so just they're, they're going to give it their all to tell the story of uh, the exodus from bondage in Egypt. And the opener here, uh, written, of course, by Stephen Schwartz, is their condition in slavery under the ancient Egyptians. And it's just super epic. It's like they're toiling to build the pyramids and stuff. It just starts with, like, this huge stone being dropped down. Like, boom. And there's a lot going on. It's just the scope of everything. And then it leads into the the killing of the, the firstborns of the Hebrews. And just, like, hugely biblically epic. And not what you would expect from DreamWorks in the decades that have come since. Like, this is not Shrek. There's like a musical number of the plagues and, uh, you know, locusts and rivers turning to blood and just wild stuff. I mean, there's like highs and lows. You get like Steve Martin being silly as a like a priest of the Egyptian gods. Um, so like s some of the comedy is hit and miss, but just a really good adaptation of the story overall and, and powerful where it needs to be powerful. And shout out, though, to Stephen Schwartz's previous project, which was The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I was really torn, like, wanting to pencil in the uh, opener from that one, Bells of Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. This guy does good work. He went on shortly after this to also do um, Wicked, the Broadway show. So um, this guy's got chops. Absolutely, yeah. So, so it's, uh, consider this like a catch-all. For uh, opening bangers in general, you know, I kind of dodged when we did our top uh, five Pixar's. This is kind of a dodge for me again. But uh, if you've not seen Prince of Egypt or not seen it in a long time, revisit it because the art is beautiful. The music's really good. Strong cast. A lot going on here. You got Ray Fiennes as the evil pharaoh. That guy can play a villain. <laughs> I definitely got to go go check that one out. That, that's a good pick. Yeah. Uh, opening bangers. I'm glad that you're a fan of opening bangers. We, we could even do our own top five opening bangers at some point. Yeah. Although I guess it would it would tap into this a little bit. I, I wanted to also briefly shout out one that I, I was in my top 10-ish. I didn't know if it was going to show up on yours, so I didn't mention it, but I'll now say it. And that is When She Loved Me from Toy Story 2. Absolute tearjerker. Great one. And then four songs that I strongly considered for the top five, but I had to disqualify because of the rules that I had set up. One is My Heart Will Go On from Titanic, which is just uh, an absolute thunderbolt of a song. 
incredible. And it does sort of get performed in the uh, the scene where Rose is flying or whatever. But it's like not the full song. Like the real song is in the credits. So I couldn't pick that. Another one is Build Me Up Buttercup, which is a pop song, is the credits sequence for There's Something About Mary. And it has maybe my favorite credit sequence ever. It's basically all characters from the movie in scenes where they appeared, but singing along to Build Me Up Buttercup. And it's got like 30 different characters who had just like appeared for a scene or two singing a line from this song. It's so funny and heartwarming. That's Build Me Up Buttercup from Something About Mary. And another one I almost picked, there's the Spanish and Italian, it's like it uses both languages, I think, version of Crying by Roy Orbison. And it's Lorando in Mulholland Drive that is something really powerful. I really want to talk Mulholland Drive at some point, Brian. And then the last one that probably would have been my number two if I had counted it is Auld Lang Syne from It's a Wonderful Life. I've talked about my love of Auld Lang Syne before. This is by far the best one. I cry every time. I cry every Tim. I don't know if you remember that meme. Lick this if you cry ever, Tim. That's me and Auld Lang Syne from from, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. So I I just wanted to shout out some of my other favorites there. And and there you got it. I mean, as I said, I had a list of like 30 songs that I was mulling over to start. You guys know that I love musicals, so there will be others. There will be more time. You've, You've heard us ramble long enough, but know that we do really like these things. We're humming when we're off pod. We're we're <laughs> queuing these things up on YouTube and enjoying ourselves with a good movie song. Right. And yeah, this list was very different from our Pixar one because instead of just, yeah, I know what my ranking is, boom, I had to like think for hours and hours about what I wanted to include and did I hit every genre I wanted to hit and what? how did I actually rank these things? So... This was this one was one for me to to noodle on. So it'll we'll see what happens with our next top five when, whenever that is. But Brian, what are we going to be discussing next week? So I couldn't not follow up this episode and not pick a musical, not pick one of the musicals that we've just paid lip service to that maybe you haven't seen before. And so the one that I am going to assign is Chicago. Okay. The Best Picture winner from, I believe, 2002. It was the first musical to win Best Picture in decades before that point. Wow. So, uh, yeah, let's consider this one next. Okay, a musical. one I've got stuff to say about, and uh, I think you queued us up for it well. A uh, musical proper following our discussion of songs. I'm I'm well primed for this, like you said. I'm, I'm excited. Cool. All right, Brian. Well, this has been a, a fun little. This, this has been a fun episode. I, I both I liked the movie itself, and I liked the uh, the list afterwards. So, yeah, it's been fun. It, it obviously we had a lot to say. This little episode is oh, not so little anymore. <laughs> That's right. All right, Brian. Well, thank you, listeners. Thank you once again for joining us on the goods, and we are excited to talk to you next time when we discuss Chicago. Brian, have a good evening. You too, Dan. Join us again, guys. Mm-hmm.